wonderful to worship the Lord together in something, isn't it? Amen. Well, this morning we continue in our uh, summer series on the parables of Jesus. And so if you are able, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, if you're using a phone, if you're using the ESV. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it will be on this screen behind me on various monitors. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's continue worshiping for some. Well, it's really wonderful to be here. I have uh, always appreciated this church. It's a great testimony in the community, and it's wonderful to see so many familiar faces. My good friend and colleague, Kerwin Rodriguez, is uh, part of the preaching team here, and I think he's Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, the passage that was read, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And I wonder if you've heard of Dan Price, the CEO that decided to set the minimum wage at his uh, company based in Seattle at $70,000 a year. Do you remember that news story? It wasn't too long ago. Set the base level salary for everybody in the company at seventy thousand a year. The story made Price something of an internet sensation and prompted a, a book deal and movie offers for the employer and 
Christ was invited to replace Donald Trump on the television show The Apprentice, and his company, Gravity Payments, was flooded with resumes. Christ's decision to raise everyone's salary won him a slew of awards. He was made CEO of the year by Seattle Business Magazine, Entrepreneur of the Year from several other magazines, but not everyone at the company was happy with what Price had done. In fact, almost immediately after the decision had been made, two of the company's most high-powered employees quit. They complained that the employees who had received such large raises, in some cases raises that doubled the size of their salary, hadn't contributed nearly as much to the company's success as they had done. Furthermore, they felt that Dan Price's generosity had actually diminished their own value. What was a raise for others felt like a pay cut to them. And now, remember, their salary hadn't changed. They were still getting the pay the same as they had been before. If all of this sounds familiar to you, it might not be just because it was an item in the news so long ago. It sounds very much like the story that Jesus told about an employer who makes a decision about what to pay his laborers. It's sometimes called the parable of the laborers in Matthew 21 through 16. And in this story, Jesus tells us that the problem with the laborers. And the problem was a problem of envy. Now, I have a feeling that if you had asked them, they would have used different language. I suspect that they would have said it was a matter of justice. I think that they would have said that the problem was that they hadn't been treated fairly. And in fact, they did say that. According to Matthew 20, 12, they complained, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work, the heat of the day. Can't you hear an echo of those who grumbled about what Dan Price did for his employees in these words? These people whose salary you just raised, they don't contribute nearly as much to the company as we do. They get a huge raise, and our salary stays the same. That just seems wrong. Of course, those who were the beneficiaries of their employer's generosity would probably see the whole situation very differently. I think they would probably say something like this. Hey, dude, chill. Can't you just be happy for me? The answer... No, actually, I can't just be happy for you. I could be happy for me if I found myself in your position, but I am really having a hard time being happy for you. Now, the biblical term for this kind of reaction, as Jesus points out in his parable, is envy. Envy. Everybody can be touched by envy. In fact, everyone is touched by envy at some time. There is no age, 
no calling, no culture that is immune to envy's dark ambition. Envy is as likely to be found in the halls of the holy as it is among the profane. It doesn't matter whether you are a child or an adult, a professional or an amateur, accomplished in what you do or a mere hack. Sooner or later, you will feel the fevered itch in the soul that is in you. What makes this so intriguing is that pretty much everybody thinks that envy is a bad thing. To be more accurate, pretty much everybody thinks that envy is a bad thing in other people. You see, our problem is that while we can spot envy a mile away in someone else, we tend not to recognize it in ourselves. So what exactly is envy? How does it arise in us, and what can we do about it? Jesus' parable of the laborers here shines light on envy, and it uncovers the bitter root of this ugly ambition. The first thing that I think that we notice about envy in Jesus' story is that it is a byproduct of unmet expectations. Envy is a byproduct of expectations that go unmet. Envy grows out of expectation. More specifically, it is what happens when someone else gets what we think should come to us. Verse 10 says, so when those came who were hired first they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. The surprise for these workers is not what they got, but what they didn't get. They got what they were told they would get. When the landowner hired them early in the day, verse 2 says he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. This was the going rate. It was a fair wage. In fact, it might even have been the amount that the laborers set for themselves. Since the text says that the landowner agreed to pay them this amount. And part of the agreement was the length of employment. They knew that they would get a denarius for the whole day. So when the time came to receive what was owed, there should have been no surprises. They were promised a day's wage, and they got a day's wage. The surprise came when those who had worked the entire day saw that they were paid the same as those who had labored only part of the day. Some, in fact, had worked only one hour, and they received the same pay as those who had been in the field the whole day. They might not even have noticed, except for some reason, the landowner decided to pay the workers beginning with the last ones to be hired and then going on to the first, according to verse 8. So when they saw that those who had worked last received the same amount that had been promised to them, they expected to receive more. But they didn't. They were paid just what had been promised. But they were angry about it. Expectation can be a powerful thing. Our experiences are often relative to our expectations. But my
my son Drew was just a toddler. My wife Jane took him to the clinic for a shot. And Drew had never had a shot before. He didn't really know what it was. But as he waited his turn, Drew noticed that there was a certain chair in that clinic. And he noticed that all the other children who sat in that chair cried. Whatever it was they were doing made the children cry. So, of course, as soon as Drew was placed in the chair, before he had even felt the prick of the needle, he burst into tears. That's often the way expectation works. Expectation often predisposes us to a certain kind of experience. Go to the party assuming that you're going to have a terrible time, and guess what? You're not going to have a good time. Decide in advance the preacher looks boring, and guess what? You'll probably sound boring. But if you convince yourself that things are not going to be as bad as you imagine, it's very possible that things will feel differently to you. In fact, there is a chemical dimension involved in this relationship between expectation and experience. According to David Rock, director of Neural Leadership, the Neural Leadership Institute and author of Your Brain at Work, there is a physiological component in all of this. When you have a positive expectation and that expectation is met, the neurotransmitter dopamine, the brain's natural feel-good chemical, is released. When we have a positive expectation that's not met, something different happens. If we expect to get X, and we get X, David Rock explains, there is a slight rise in dopamine. If we expect to get X, and we get 2X, twice as much, there's a greater rise. But if we expect to get X, and get less than X, there is a much bigger drop. When we don't hit our expectations, Rock explains, our brain doesn't just get slightly unhappy. It sends out a message of danger, threat. Now maybe if the landowner in Jesus' parable had read David Rock's book, he would have decided to pay his workers in a different order. But that's not really the point. That's not what Jesus is telling us this story for. Jesus' parable is more than a cautionary tale about expectation. His aim is to warn us to be careful about the conclusions that we draw about God's treatment of other people. Because the truth is, we often find ourselves disappointed with the way that God treats us relative to others. God does not always meet our expectations. Those who tell you that God will never disappoint you cannot have had much dealing with they certainly cannot have read the Bible. The fact is, God disappoints people all the time. They expect something from God, and they get something else. They want Him to do one thing, but instead He does something else, something different. Now, disappointment is certainly uncomfortable, and all things being equal, we'd rather avoid it. But there's nothing inherently sinful about being disappointed. Disappointment is not itself sinful, and it does not always lead us into sin. 
Sometimes we adapt to our disappointment and learn to accept our circumstances, whatever they might be. In other instances, we are motivated by our disappointment and we try to do whatever we can in order to achieve the hoped-for goal. Our disappointment might prompt us to pray in the hope that God would grant our desire in the future. But it doesn't take much for disappointment to move in the opposite direction. Disappointment can just as easily drive a wedge into our relationship with God. At the thin end of that wedge, the thin edge of that wedge, is the simple act of comparing our circumstances with the circumstances of others. This happens when our disappointment moves beyond the fact that God has acted in a way that we didn't expect, so that we begin to compare ourselves others. In other words, it's not the disappointment that's the problem. It's the comparison and the envy. Disappointment deteriorates into envy as a result of a miscalculation. Ordinary disappointment mutates into envy when I begin to compare myself with others and then I begin to draw false conclusions. And that's the second thing that we learn about this ugly ambition of envy from this parable. Envy is a result of unhealthy comparison. Envy is a result of unhealthy comparison. Envy isn't just about disappointment. Ultimately, envy is about comparison. It wasn't the pay so much as it was the comparison that caused the laborers in Jesus' parable to grumble. Their complaint is voiced in verse 12. These men who were hired last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You know, we hear a lot about justice these days. And often our ideas of justice have to do with equal treatment. Here's a case where equal treatment is reckoned as unjust. The payment was equal, but the length of service working conditions were not. The laborers who were hired first complained that they had worked longer hours. They had worked under more difficult conditions than the others. The problem wasn't that they had worked harder and got paid less than everyone else. Their complaint was that they had worked harder and were paid the same. In other words, the slogan behind this employee uprising wasn't equal pay for equal work. It was equal work for equal pay. What's more, I suspect that if we were to take a poll, many of us would side with them. We would say that they were treated unfairly by their employer. So we should note very carefully how the landowner defends the justice of his actions. Verse 13, he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Who's being cheated here? Certainly if the landowner had paid them less than others, they would have had grounds for a complaint. But he didn't. What's more, this employer goes further. He asserts that he has a right to pay everyone the same. 
according to verses 14 and 15, he said, Take your pay and go. I want to give this man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. The first part of verse 14 could be translated, Take what is yours. Landowner is acting within his authority. He has given them what is rightfully theirs. His actions were not only allowed, his actions were just. They were just because he wasn't intent on being fair. It was his intention to be generous. The point is clear. Fair is good. abstraction, you know, it sounds pretty great. It's when I'm on the receiving end of fair and someone else is on the receiving end of generous that I have a problem with it. I compare my experience with theirs and then I start to calculate. In fact, it is just this sort of comparison that prompted Jesus to tell this parable in the first place. It was sparked by Simon Peter's question in Matthew 19, 27, after a prospective follower balked at the cost of discipleship and refused to follow Jesus. Afterward, Peter declared, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Sure, it's a question, but it's also a comparison. Peter's question was intended to portray the disciples in a favorable light compared to the rich young man in Matthew 19.22 who went away sad because of his great wealth. It's the same spirit as the child who has just heard her parents reprove an older brother for not eating their vegetables and who then says with a self-satisfied smile, but I ate all mine, mommy, didn't I? We have left everything to follow you, Peter said. What then will there be for us? And Jesus gives a straightforward answer to Peter's question in verses 28 and 29. I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. We have left everything to follow you, Jesus. We who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day, what will there be for us? last, and many who are last will be first. 
notice that this is the same application that Jesus draws from his parable in Matthew 20:16. But many who are the first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Who are the laborers in the vineyard? Well, certainly it's Peter and the disciples. But it's you too. We are the laborers in the vineyard. And what is Jesus' point? It's simply this. Be wary of comparing yourself with others. Be slow to compare yourself with others who labor for Christ because you are liable to make an error in judgment. When you compare your service to Christ with that of others, you are liable to err in your own favor and at the expense of others. It is a mistake to set ourselves up as timekeepers in the kingdom of God who measure the value of other people's service and compare it to our own. And sadly, this is a very common thing. It is the kind of thing that we often find in the church. It is especially common among those who are highly involved in the life of the church. Those who, of us who fall into this trap have a tendency to divide the church into two classes. There is the small company of the committed, among whom we count ourselves. Those who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And then there's everybody else. Or to use the language of statistics that we sometimes hear about the church... There are the 20% who do all the work. And then there is the 80%, everybody else. Now, there are a number of things wrong with this kind of thing. One of the most glaring problems with it is the presumptuousness of it. It assumes a level of knowledge about other people that we really do not have. Do you really know what the 80% are doing for Christ? Are you with them on their jobs and in their homes? Do you know how they are representing Christ in their neighborhoods? Do you know the circumstances and the pressures under which they bear testimony to their faith in Jesus Christ? Probably not. We only know what we're and we may not even know that as well as we think. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Another problem with this 80-20 kind of thinking is that it tends to define ministry and service to Christ very narrowly. It pretty much only thinks of it in terms of the church's programs. In other words, it tends to see the burden of the work and the heat of the day through the lens of the 20%. It's skewed toward their agenda. It is skewed toward their interests. 
It tends to define ministry and service to Christ in a way that favors them. The greatest problem for those of us who set ourselves up as timekeepers in the kingdom of God, who measure the value of other people's service by comparing it to our own, is that this is a calculation which is ultimately driven by envy. That envy causes us to draw the wrong conclusions, both about our own service to Christ and that of everybody else. It leads to unreasonable expectations of others and ultimately bitterness toward God. That's the trouble with envy. Envy is the bitter flower of a poison tree. All its fruit is tainted. It's a byproduct of unfulfilled expectations, which are the fruit of false reckoning. But more than anything, envy has at its root selfish ambition. Envy is rooted in selfish ambition. Jesus makes this very clear. The root of the problem for those who complain was not a matter of injustice. It was a matter of envy. Now the old word that we use for this is covetousness. Covetousness is a problem of the heart. Notice again what the landowner says in verses 14 and 15. Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. Covetousness is the desire to possess that which does not, leave, does not rightly belong to us. It is one of the foundational sins mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Covetousness binds blinds us to God's goodness by making us more aware of what we don't have than what we do. It leaves us dissatisfied with God's provision and it hardens our hearts toward others. Envy is a particular form of covetousness. It's the kind that would rather see other people go without than to see them receive a gift that the envious desire for because of this, envy causes us to despise God's generosity when it's extended to others. We find that we cannot rejoice at the good that comes to them. Envy makes us petty. It makes us irascible and quick to find fault. When considering someone else's good fortune, envy dwells on the blemish rather than the beauty of what has been given. Now, we've all been on the receiving end of this, of this kind of thing show your new car to a friend, you're all excited about it, and they say, oh yeah, I've heard that's a real gas guzzler. That's going to need a lot of repairs. You tell someone how excited you are about your new job, and they say, well, you know, you're just in the honeymoon phase. That's going to wear off soon. You mention the raise that you just got, and someone tells you, well, that's fine, but you know, taxes are going to eat that up. You introduce them to your new girlfriend and they say, okay, maybe we better not go there. 
Romans 12.15 tells us to rejoice for those who rejoice and to weep for those who weep. Envy turns that command upside down so that it reads, weep when others rejoice. Rejoice when they weep. Envy cannot rejoice in the good that God does to others because it is driven by a different motivation. James 3.13-16 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Now, everybody believes that envy is a bad thing. But we don't treat it as if it's all that bad. Oh, sure, we see it as a fault, but we pretty much see it as a relatively small one. Especially if it's our envy. We treat our envy as if it were only a minor personality defect. You know, some people have bad table manners. Some people are loud. Some people struggle with envy. The Bible has a much more serious view. Because here, at the heart of envy, you find selfish ambition. Envy was the smoldering fire that lit Satan's rebellion. Envy drove Cain to murder his brother, Abel. Envy set Jesus' disciples against each other during the Last Supper, provoking them to argue with one another about which of them should be considered the greatest. And the scriptures tell us that it was envy that drove the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities to crucify Envy is no small matter. Envy is a great sin. We might even say that it is the great sin. And the terrible thing about envy is that it can so easily be disguised as virtue. That's what the laborers do in Jesus' parable. They dress up their envy in the rags of self-righteousness. They call it justice. They claim that it was a question of fairness. But in reality, it was their own selfish ambition The fact that we might be able to deceive ourselves about our own envy by rehabilitating it and disguising it as something virtuous ought to be a great concern to us. How many of the demands that we claim are matters of justice are really just thinly disguised expressions of envy? We say we want what's right. How often is our ministry vision merely selfish ambition that has been dressed up in Sunday clothing and brought to church? We 
claim to be working for the kingdom, but the truth is, we're mainly working for ourselves. We want the church to be bigger. We want it to be better than everyone else's. In his exposition of the Ten Commandments, entitled The Ten, Mark Mitchell explains how envy manifests itself in coveting. Coveting is what causes that little twinge of disappointment when someone else gets something you want, Mitchell explains. It's how you react when a co-worker gets the promotion, when your roommate finds romance, when your friend goes on a dream vacation, or when your neighbors get a new addition to their house and you don't. But it isn't just things that spark our envy. It can be status. It can be spiritual gifts. It can even be the attention that someone receives, whether they are the bride at the wedding or the corpse at the funeral. But of course, the real question is this. What are we going to do about it? If envy is so common, if envy is so deceitful, and if envy is so deadly, of this parable, Jesus provides us with a two-step remedy. The first step, bow the knee. Bow the knee to God's supremacy. Notice again how the landowner who represents God in this parable responds to the laborer's complaint in verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. God has the right to be as generous as he pleases to whomever he wishes. We will never be able to overcome our envy until we recognize that God has the right to be generous. He is not obligated to give us everything that he gives everybody else. not all have the same intelligence. We do not all have the same opportunities. We do not all have the same health. We do not all have the same good looks. And none of what we call ours is actually owed to us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And nowhere is that more true than in the spiritual realm. We have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day, the laborers complain. We have left everything to follow you, Jesus, Peter says. But why do you think that was, did you really think it was because you were smarter than everybody else? Did you really think it was because you were more virtuous than everyone else? Did you really think it was because you had a better handle on your sins? We are what we are by the grace of God. It's a gift. Which brings us to the second step 
not only to bow the knee to God's supremacy, but to open our hearts to His grace. Look again at what the landowner says in verses 13 and 14 and how he responds to those who have complained. But he answered one of them, Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take yours and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. I do not see this as a threat. I do not understand this statement to be a rejection. This is the overture of a friend. If we were to put these words in the mouth of God, I think we would hear Him speak to us about our envy this way. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. I will keep all my promises to you. Receive what is yours and move on. have what we have as a gift from God. A God who loves to be generous to us. And those things that we do not have, well, perhaps it's because we do not need them. We are what we are by the grace of God. The God who has poured out His grace on us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are not yet what we hope to be, well, that is simply because we are not yet all that we will. You are struggling with envy this morning. This is my word.